Today we're going to focus on one kingdom, that's the northern kingdom, and we're going to look at probably the most wicked king Israel ever had, and that is, of course, a fellow by the name of Ahab. With that, we're going to be introduced to one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. That doesn't include Moses, but it's one of the greatest prophets that we see to the northern kingdom, really to all of Israel, and that is the prophet Elijah. And so we're going to look through the historical narratives as these two interact with each other. We're only going to, we're going to have to take both of them in two parts, so we're going to look at the first part today, focusing on 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, through chapter 18, verse 19. So let's look at this together, and we're going to see uh, the various things that are taking place here uh, that you and I need to be aware of and help us to understand what's going on with the northern kingdom. Let me go ahead and say this right up, the fr up front, though. Oftentimes, we like to idolize our heroes in the scripture, such as Elijah. Elijah is a powerful figure in the scripture that you and I look up to and we think that we are not going to be like him in any way. There's no way when you look at the things that he does. But when you look at the historical narratives, specifically when you look at these passages in 1 Kings and then when we get into 2 Kings, you're going to see that Elijah is just like you and I. The difference is, is that he is going to be obedient to the Lord in all that he does. So let me just kind of set up our lesson today by kind of reflecting on what James wrote in his epistle in the New Testament. He writes this in chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, did you catch that first part in verse 17? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's not a superhero. He's a human being, just like you and I. But he was a man of prayer, a man who followed after the Lord and did what the Lord called him to do. So we're going to look at this today. With that, we're going to interact with probably one bad dude who was pretty bad, and we're going to see that in our passages today, Ahab. So let's get right into it. We're going to start, first of all, with the wickedness of Ahab. Start off seeing that in chapter 16, verses 29 through 34. So the text tells us that in the 38th year of Asa's reign, as king of Judah, Ahab became king over Israel. Now, if you remember, 1 Kings is kind of chronicling both the kingdoms in the south, that is Judah, and the kingdoms in the north, which is Israel, or would be later known as Samaria. And so when they talk about the beginnings of these reigns, they make it with reference to the other kingdom. So when Ahab begins his first year as king, it's the 38th year of King Asa. So we're seeing that here and there. Now, this would be towards the end of Asa's reign, because remember, he only reigned about 
40 years, 41 years. So we're seeing that here. Now, he ruled over, Ahab ruled over Israel for 22 years. All right, so let's just stop for a moment. We've already examined lots of the kings as we've been going along with the northern kingdom, and, and a few of them have had long reigns. Most of them have had short reigns, including one guy who was only king for seven days. Ahab here has a long reign. 22 years is a long reign, folks. And he's reigning over Israel for 22 years. Now, again, the scripture either says he did what was right or he did what was wrong. Here it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it was more than the king's before him. <clears throat> now, his dad had the same type of description, Omri. Omri, it was said, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it was more than the kings before him. Here comes Ahab. He's doing even more than his father. And so it's going to list for us here in chapter 16 the different things that he does. There's three specific things that he's doing that make him even more evil than the other kings. So here's what it happens. So it starts off, it says, he went beyond the sins of Jeroboam and married Jezebel, the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. Now, again, beyond the sins of Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam introduced a kind of a hybrid Israeli system where this is the gods that brought us out of Egypt. It was kind of embracing some of the things of Yahweh, but he set up these golden calves. So there was kind of a mixture between what was the true faith and worship of Yahweh, but setting up a false system to keep them from going to Jerusalem well, here we have Ahab, and he is basically forgetting that, although I'm sure that's still going on, and we will see that it is. Forgetting that, he decides he's going to marry the daughter of the king of Sidon, which is to the north. The Sidonians lived north in what is what we would call Lebanon today. And her name is Jezebel, which we know <clears throat> that's not a good name. And the reason why it's not a good name is because of this woman. Now, it also says that Ahab served Baal and set up an altar in the temple of Baal in Samaria. Remember, his father, Omri, bought a hill with uh, some talents of silver. And then, of course, he built a city there. In this city, when he built the city, he built an altar to Baal. He built a temple to Baal and Ahab serves Baal now. He doesn't serve the Lord. He serves Baal. That is the gods, the, the Canaanite gods. It's a fertility god. It's a god of rain. And so he set up an altar in the temple of Baal. Ahab also made a wooden image that provoked the Lord to anger. Now, we've talked about the wooden image before. Remember, it was a wooden image that uh, Gideon had cut down and brought on the wrath of the village when they wanted to kill him. Basically, again, it's a fertility god, Asherah. It's a hideous thing. And he has made a wooden image. So here is Ahab. He's fully embracing the Canaanite gods of Canaan or Israel. 
rejecting Yahweh. Now, there is one other thing that he does here, and I, and I think it's interesting. Why would it be noted here? Of course, we need to know that for the historical reasons. But it kind of tells you where Ahab is at when it comes to the things of the Lord. Ahab also gave permission to heal of Bethel to rebuild Jericho. You say, okay, so he gave permission to some guy to rebuild a city. Why is that a problem? Well, the rebuilding of Jericho cost heal the lives of his two sons. The text will tell you that one side died at the beginning and the other son died at the end of this construction project. Again, you're saying, okay, George, what's the deal with this? Well, this was within accordance with the curse Joshua placed on any who rebuilt Jericho after its fall. Do you remember, it was God who destroyed Jericho when the armies, army of Israel marched around for several days in a row, gave a shout, the walls came down. When that happened, they were told not to rebuild the place, and, and basically Joshua was basically uttering that any who did would be cursed. And here's the passage. The passage we see then is in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at the time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city of Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. And this text is being fulfilled here. Now, you're saying, that's so what this has got to do with Ahab and his wickedness? Obviously, up to this point, nobody has rebuilt Jericho. And there's a reason why, because it was forbidden. Here we see that King Ahab really has no regard for the things of God, nor anything with regards to prohibitions. So he allows Heal to basically do what he has to do in rebuilding it. Of course, it costs him his sons, but it just shows you the wickedness of Ahab. So that really brings us then to the end of chapter 16. Well, now we come to... Uh, chapter 17, verse 1, and we're going to see the prophet and the famine or the drought that would come. And we're going to be introduced to Elijah, the Tishbite. So the prophet came from Tishba in Gilead, east of the Jordan. Remember, there were two and a half tribes who had the property of the Amorites that were given to them by their request from Moses, if they would go with the other tribes to take the land, and then they would go back and they would settle there. And that was Israel, east of the Jordan. In the land of Gilead was a village named Tishba, and from there came a man by the name of Elijah, from the east of the Jordan. Now, of course, this would be part of the northern kingdom of the ten tribes that went with Jeroboam. Now, nothing else is known about the origin of Elijah. We don't know anything else the text does not tell us. All we need to know is that he shows up here. 
What we know is, is that his name, Elijah, is the Lord is Yahweh. That's what his name means. The Lord is Yahweh. So we see here this man who's obviously from godly stock shows up out of nowhere. And he shows up and tells Ahab something. So he's obviously a prophet. So Elijah told Ahab that it would not rain for a period of time until he spoke the word. Now let's just stop for a moment. This is a pretty bold thing. This is not like just showing up and saying, hey, I got a word for you. Here it is. You're talking about appearing before the king and pronouncing that there is going to be a famine. That's a pretty bold thing to do. But we see, we've seen that so far with the prophets of God. That they would risk the wrath of the king to basically proclaim the word that God had told them. So then the Lord told Elijah to flee to the brook Cherith to the east, in the east as it flows into the Jordan. So basically from there he tells Elijah to leave Samaria, head out towards the brook Cherith or a wadi as they would call it. We're not sure where exactly Cherith is. There's a lot of different places that are suggested for it. But it's in the east and it flows into Jordan. So he is to go and hide by this brook. Now, the scripture tells us that God provides for his prophet here. How does that happen? Well, the ravens brought bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. So he's getting his food brought to him by birds. And he gets his water from the brook. Or from the wadi. He may, remained by the brook until it dried up because there was no, because there was a drought in the land. So he basically stays at Kareth, at this brook, being fed by the ravens until, because there's a famine in the land, when there's a famine, there's a drought. <clears throat> Is there water? No, there's no water. It's a wadi, it's going to dry up. He stays there until there's no more water. So then the Lord sent Elijah to a poor widow and her son in Sidon. All right, now this is interesting. What's going on here? Well, let's be honest. All of this is for the protection of the prophet. And we're going to see later that there's a reason why the Lord did this. So he sends Elijah... From the brook now, because it's dried up, he tells him to go into Sidon, which is Lebanon, to the north of Israel. Where is he going to send him? To a poor widow and her son. Now, when we come to the widow, the introduced to the widow, the widow had only one final meal to eat when the prophet found them. So she's down to the last portion, a very small, measly portion of food to eat, and here comes the prophet. She protested when Elijah told her to feed him. Now again, you'd be like, why would she have to do that? Well, because of the customary ways in which people interacted in that time, 
she would have been required by the laws of hospitality because of his request to feed him. But she's protesting because they're down to their last meal. She says her and her son are going to die. Why are you even bothering me asking for food? She doesn't have any. She's a widow. And let's just kind of remind ourselves here. They didn't have social systems in place to take care of those who were in need. When you talk about widows and orphans, they are always listed in Scripture as the most destitute, the low of the low in a community. There was no one to care for them. They were the oppressed. So Elijah told her that the bin of flour and the jar of oil will not run out until the drought had ended. That her bin of oil and jar of oil would... Excuse me, her bin of flour and jar of oil wouldn't run out. So the two main ingredients for them to make food, oil and flour. She's got one bin. This is a miracle. It's never going to run out. There's always going to be enough oil, always going to be enough flour to feed them. And of course, that happened. Now, the scripture then goes on and tells us another miracle that happened with Elijah. Sometime after these things, the son of the widow became seriously sick and died. Sometimes, it doesn't say exactly when, but it's obviously within that period, because you're talking about a drought that's lasting three and a half years. The widow's son gets seriously sick, and of course, she, he dies. So then I want you to notice how she responds. The widow accused Elijah of being there to bring her sin to remembrance. Whoa, what's going on here? You understand grief, but why in the world is she accusing him? And why would she say to bring her sin to remembrance? Now, a lot of people have tried to figure out what her sin is, and I don't think that's really what you need to recognize here. What you need to recognize is the thinking of the people at the time. When bad stuff happens, people usually thought bad stuff happened because of a sin in their life, that they had committed sin. Do you remember when Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of John are walking along and they see a man who's born blind and a question is asked, Lord, who sinned, his parents or did he sin in the womb? Kind of a philosophical question. He's obviously suffering, Lord. It has to be because of sin. This is the same thing that's going on with this woman. She's saying to Elijah, who is obviously there, and she knows he's some sort of prophet of a foreign god, but he's a prophet. You're here and you're bringing my sin to remembrance. God, this is why my son is dying. She's, she's thinking that his death is because of something that she's done in the past. Well, here's what we see. Elijah took the son and went to the upper room and laid him on the bed, on the boy's bed. And then notice, Elijah prayed and asked the Lord why he had brought tragedy on the widow. All right, let's stop for a moment. I think it's significant. You don't want to draw, I mean, it is a historical narrative. You can, you can learn things from it. Not necessarily theological teaching, but things that we can learn from it. But remember I told you from James that 
James tells us that Elijah was a man like us. And what you see here when he's praying is Elijah's being real. So when he goes to God, it's not just platitudes, folks. He's being real. So he's asking God, God, why have you brought this evil on this woman that you have told to take care of me? That's a pretty powerful question. This is where the prophet is at in his relationship with God. He can be honest. We see that kind of thing often in the scripture. Remember <clears throat> remember when Abraham was interceding with the Lord for Sodom? Would the righteous judge of the universe do wrong against the righteous? Sweep them away with the unrighteous? Do, do you see what I'm saying? There, there's a sense in being real with God about your pain or what you perceive as being a wrong. And that's what we see happening here with Elijah. And so he's praying and asking God, well, why did you bring this tragedy on her, Lord? She's taking care of me, your, your servant. Why are you doing that? I think that would open up a lot of, for a lot of us, a, a whole different concept of prayer and our relationship with God if we would just be a little bit more real with Him, a little bit more honest and expressing our thoughts and our feelings. But here's what He did. He, he, Elijah prayed that the boy's soul would come back and the Lord heard him. He's praying, Lord, let this boy's soul come back into him. And the Lord heard him. And the boy's soul came back into him. So the boy revived, and Elijah brought him downstairs to his mother. So what we see now is, is that the boy comes back to life. And with that, we see a great miracle here. A great miracle happening with Elijah. Now the woman, the woman proclaims that she knows that he is a man of God and his words are truth. She's basically saying because of this miracle, now I know you are for real. You're a man of God and your words are truth. This is amazing, isn't it? Now, the text then goes on and says that in the third year of the severe drought, the Lord told Elijah to present himself to Ahab. So in the third year of the drought, so that's three years after he has proclaimed it, he's been at the brook Cherith, he's with this woman in Sidon, and her, think about this, the miracle of the jar of, the bin of flour and the jar of oil, they're not running out. There's been the miracle of the boy being raised up. In the third year now, Elijah says, okay, I have to go because the Lord told me it's time. I've got to go see Ahab. Now, at the same time it's telling us that, it kind of drifts back to the kingdom of Ahab and, and some things that are going on there. And we're introduced to another fellow now by the name of Obadiah. Now, I don't want you to be confused. This is not the author of the book of Obadiah. 
This is a steward in the house of Ahab. So Obadiah was in charge of Ahab's house and he feared the Lord. Now that's a great contradiction there, isn't it? Here's a guy who is serving the most wicked king in the northern kingdom. Most wicked king probably in all of Israel. This king who sets up altars to Baal and sets up an Ashtaroth and he doesn't care about the Lord. Well, he's got a servant who's serving him, but this servant loves the Lord, serves the Lord, fears the Lord. It also tells us that when Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah hid a hundred prophets and fed them. All right, so this is kind of telling you a little bit of what's going on in the northern kingdom at this time. And that is Jezebel takes the initiative and has the prophets of God in the northern kingdom wiped out. But Obadiah manages to hide a hundred prophets, 50 to a cave, and he manages to get them fed. So he uses his authority as the steward to hide a hundred prophets from being killed by Jezebel. Now, because of the drought, Ahab sent Obadiah to search for water for the animals. What kind of animals? Well, of course, you're talking about a kingdom. Of course, they have a military. With that, they have chariots, and of course, they have cavalry. There are animals there. There are mules. There are horses that need to be cared for. And if you're running out of water, that's not going to be good. So we got to find some water. So he sends out Obadiah, you go in this direction, you look for water, I'll go in this direction, and we will look for water for the animals. Now while Obadiah is out, he probably gets the biggest shock of his life. Elijah met Obadiah and he fell on his face before the prophet. So as he's going along searching for water, there's Elijah. Boom! And as soon as he knows it's Elijah, what does he do? He falls on his face before the prophet. And Elijah told Obadiah to go tell Ahab that he was there. Basically, Elijah's saying, hey, Obadiah, I want you to go back to your master and tell your master I want to meet with him. I'm here. Now, you would think that's going to be it, but the text tells you that's not it because Obadiah protest this now. Obadiah stated that Ahab had searched everywhere to find Elijah. The text tells you that he just didn't look throughout the northern kingdom. He looked everywhere. He went to neighboring kingdoms and even got them to swear oaths that they didn't have Elijah. He wanted to kill Elijah because he saw Elijah as the source of the difficulty upon the nation. So Obadiah is telling, telling Elijah that Ahab has done this. So Obadiah was afraid that he would be killed because the prophet might disappear again. In fact, the text tells you, he said, God may take you away again. And here I told the king, and now the king's going to kill me because you're not here. He's really worried about himself. Now, Elijah... 
listens to this, and, and here's what Obadiah does. Obadiah then says, look, I've served the Lord. I feared the Lord. He proclaims that he served the Lord from youth and had hidden the prophets. In fact, if you notice what he says there in the text, he says, have you not heard how I hid the prophets? Here's a guy who doesn't want to do it, God. This is, I've been serving you, but this is what I've done. You should know that. This is the attitude of Obadiah. And Elijah proclaimed that he would appear before Ahab. And so Obadiah went and told Ahab. So basically, Elijah says, look, Obadiah, I've got to appear before him. Don't need to worry. I don't even think he even worried about worrying, not him not worrying. I'm going to be there. You go tell him to meet me. So then we come to now the next part here and we see that Ahab meets Elijah. Now this is an interesting interaction. So Ahab saw Elijah and asked if he was the troubler of Israel. So isn't that an interesting thing to say here? So he sees Elijah and says, is that you, O troubler of Israel? See, in Ahab's mind, the problem is Elijah. The problem is not that they're in the midst of judgment. Isn't that what we do sometimes? God, you're the one that's doing this to me. Well, God was doing it to them because of judgment, because they had been doing wrong. Ahab fails to see that he's doing wrong. So he describes Elijah as the troubler of Israel. Now here's what, a what Elijah does. He states that, Elijah stated that Ahab and his father's house have troubled Israel. Basically said, no, it's not me, big guy. You and your father's house have brought nothing but misery upon the kingdom. You have brought this judgment because of your sin. You have done this. In fact, here's what he does. He, Elijah pointed out that they had forsaken the Lord and followed the Baals, the idols. So basically he says, look, you are the one who has turned your back on God and you followed after these Canaanite deities. So he told Ahab to do something. So Elisha told Ahab to gather the prophets of Baal and Asheroth to him on Mount Carmel. Now, when you look at the text, we're not just talking about a couple of guys getting together for a meeting. The text describes here that the number of prophets of Baal are, I believe it says here, 400, as well as another 450 prophets of Asherah. So you're talking about several hundred people who are going to be told to meet here. In fact, here it is. The prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, as well as 400 prophets of Asherah. So you got 850 false prophets. Where are they supposed to meet? In Mount Carmel, which is in the north, in the north of Israel. And that, my friends, is where we're going to stop. When we come back in the first Sunday in January, 
we're going to see the greatest confrontation in the Old Testament between good and evil, between the prophet of God and the prophets of a false prophet, of, of a false god, Baal. And we're going to see what God does. But you're also going to notice that while there is an outcome that looks good, ultimately it's not. Because it doesn't change anything. And that in itself is another lesson. 